This is Fresh Ed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas in educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brem. Today, we explore Aboriginal voices in education research in Australia. Australians will soon vote in a referendum about whether to change their constitution to allow for the creation of an advisory body made up of First Nations peoples. This body would provide advice to the parliament and government on matters that impact Indigenous communities. This is called The Voice. There are at least 250 different groups of Indigenous people across Australia. So the idea is that each of those groups of people would be able to provide advice through uh, probably what is some regional decision-making structures to level that advice up so that it gets to the Commonwealth Government. It would be made up of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people providing advice on issues that affect Indigenous people. Nikki Moody is an Associate Professor and Program Director of the Atlantic Fellows for Social Equity at the University of Melbourne. Together with Kevin Lowe, Rosalind Dixon, and Karen Trimmer, she has recently co-edited the volume Assessing the Evidence in Indigenous Education Research, Implications for Policy and Practice. Nikki Moody, welcome to Fresh Ed. Hi, Will. It's so lovely to be here. I'm joining you from the lands of the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung people in a place most people know as Melbourne, but in the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung language, we call it Nam. And it is so lovely to be here with you today. I'm so happy that you could be basically the first guest living in Australia that I've interviewed while I've also been in Australia. So thank you. So I'm so happy to have you on, Nikki, because, you know, there's a lot happening in Australia right now. Australians are going to be voting in some sort of referendum on the issue about giving Indigenous communities a route to help inform policy and legal decisions that impact their lives. And it's going to be this con- like changing the constitution for, you know, an Aboriginal voice, for the voice as it's called. Can you explain what this voice to parliament is for listeners around the world who might not really know too much of what's going on in Australia today? Yeah, absolutely, Will. So Australia's constitution isn't a bill of rights in the way that a constitution might be understood as a bill of rights in so many other countries. Our constitution is basically a rule book for what the states do and for what our federal government does, who can raise what kind of taxes, who's responsible for post offices and lighthouses. (laughs) It's that kind of document. So our constitution sets out things like how parliament and the courts should work, how many senators there are, how, how they can vote, this kind of thing, right? So really important to note that Australia's constitution isn't the same Bill of Rights approach that so many other constitutions are. The proposal that is currently before the Australian people is a question as to whether or not Australia should have a formal voice to Parliament that advises Parliament on issues related to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. It's a really simple question. Should the Constitution recognise Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in Australia? That's it. It's an advisory body. Nothing more nothing less. So it's a it's an advisory body made up of First Nations peoples that does what it says. It gives advice on different legislation and policies that the government or parliament might be considering. That's exactly right. So in Australia, there are around 250, maybe a few more different languages, different Indigenous languages in Australia. And you might use language like First Nations or tribal or native in other countries where your listeners are. But in Australia, 
Australia, we tend to use a combination of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander or First Nations people, and there are at least 250 different groups of Indigenous people across Australia. So the idea is that each of those groups of people would be able to provide advice through uh, probably what is some regional decision-making structures to level that advice up so that it gets to the Commonwealth Government. It would be made up of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people providing advice on issues that affect Indigenous people. And there are so many of these advisory processes that already exist in government, right? So there are human rights committees constituted in parliament. There are so many statutory and legislative bodies that provide advice on different kinds of things, right? Everything from pharmaceuticals to farming, this kind of process of obtaining advice isn't unusual for any government to do. What makes this one different is that they can't get rid of it. And that's really the question that so many Indigenous rights issues hang on in Australia. And so this is why it is a constitutional referendum. How sort of common is a referendum on the Constitution in Australia? Well, it's actually heaps more common than what you might think. Since Federation in 1901, so when all our states got together and agreed to have one federal body, there's been 44 different referendums, but only eight of them have ever passed. Most of the time, when the government is seeking permission from the Australian people to change the constitution, Australian people say, oh, no, thank you very much. Uh, we, we're going to keep things the way that they are. But the kinds of things that Australians vote yes on are often the things related to some aspect of quality, some aspect of individual rights. So out of those eight referendums that have passed, out of the 44 that we've had since 1901, the biggest yes vote we've ever had was for the last referendum on Indigenous issues to give the Commonwealth the power to make laws for Aboriginal people and to count us in the census. And so that was the last referendum that passed with any really significant majority. And so we're really hoping to see the same thing again in October. So it's quite interesting that it's such a, it's a yes or no vote. That's what is going to be asked to the Australians across the country. Where is the current polling? Like, How does it look for the different camps, the yes camp and the no camp? Oh, well, this is really tricky, right? So about a year ago, yes, polling was probably sitting at about 65%. And now, yes, polling is probably at about 45%. It's a really interesting political context at the moment. We've seen the influx of a lot of conservative money, a lot of conservative politics, and messaging from the US far right to influence the decision. So much disinformation and misinformation on social media, in our major news outlets about what The Voice is and, and how it will work and what it will do and the ideas that it's privileging some people over others. It's really tricky. We can see why the polling has really taken a tumble over the, the past few months. But I guess the thing that gives me hope is that in our one of our last major elections in 2019, the polling was really wrong. We thought that one person would be elected as Prime Minister and a totally different person was. So, you know, the polling, I think, can be taken with a bit of a grain of salt. And I certainly, certainly hope it can. And I certainly hope that when Australians walk into the polling booth and they have the opportunity to vote yes, that we can, as a nation, take that step. I think, you know, in Australia, we had the privilege of seeing the Matildas, our, our soccer, our football team, you know, like get, you know, it's so far in the recent World Cup and it was such an outpouring of love and support. And I think that the way that Australians rallied behind that sporting team is just something that we hadn't seen before. And I think it signalled that this is a country that has come a long way where our politics has changed and progressed 
and that we're looking for a different path to the future. Young people especially are looking for something different than what they've seen in the past. One of the reasons why the voice would be so important is because it lets us put that advice on the record. Advice can be ignored, right? Like a government doesn't have to take it on board, doesn't have to do anything with it, but it can't be ignored. And I think that's the greatest possibility that we're facing as a nation at the moment. And I think the Matildas showed us this recently, right? That a country is changing, Australia is changing in many ways for the better. And if you want better advice on how to respond to climate change, if you want better advice on how to respond to the fires and floods that we're seeing with increasing ferocity in Australia, about how to make everyone feel welcome, about how to make sure everyone has a sense of purpose and responsibility and hope for the future, how to manage crop productivity or, you know, any of these kinds of things, you're going to want to hear what Indigenous people have to say on those things, right? So it's my hope that we're seeing a groundswell of support of people that really want to see something different in the future. And, and hopefully that's what we can do when the referendum date rolls around. So one of the issues that obviously are probably going to come across the voice to parliament if it passes is about education, indigenous education, because obviously that matters to the voice of the, the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities. And of course, the government's of both the states and the territories and the federal government have spent a lot of time thinking about education for indigenous communities here in Australia. And it just so happens that you have been working on a project for the last few years called the Aboriginal Voices Project that has begun to look at some of these issues. So can you tell me a little bit about what this project is? The Aboriginal Voices Project was uh, started way back, I think 2015, 2016 was when we first started talking about it. And it really is the brainchild of uh, Gubby Gubby Man, Associate Professor, Uncle Dr. Kevin Lowe over in Sydney. And Uncle Kevin had spent many years working in schools, in government departments, uh, on the issue of Indigenous education. And he wanted to focus on building a body of work, an influential body of work that was based on getting the best quality evidence that we can into the hands of people who are making decisions about Indigenous education. We spoke about how often Indigenous peoples, Native kids in schools are tested, surveyed, analysed, measured, you know, in so many ways. There's meant to be this mountain of data out there about us. Let's go and get that data and analyse it. Let's turn it into a, its most pithy truths that we can get those messages into the hands of people who need to hear them. When we got into the work, we were really surprised, I think, about the quality of data that was out there. We thought it would be much higher, perhaps, than what it was. We thought that, that people who were making decisions about Indigenous education had to be making decisions on the basis of good data, right? Or policy-based evidence-making, I think, is the thing, right? And so we were like, oh, God, okay, well, we thought, let's have a look at what has actually been done. There's been countless curriculum discourse analyses. There's been countless theoretical studies. What does the data actually say? What's the empirical research on this? And how much research are we talking about here? Like what, you know, if you're saying that indigenous communities have been measured and analyzed and, you know, experimented on in awful ways, probably as well in the long history, how much data are, you, are we talking about? 
that you were able to sort of get your hands on? Well, in the case of literacy and numeracy, for example, there are only a handful of studies that actually relied on empirical data that was collected with and from Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Studies on racism over a generational period. So the study that I looked at was the impact of racism on the experiences of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people's schooling. And there was less than 50 studies over a generation that met the bar to be analysed. We were shocked at really what we thought was going to be a mountain of, you know, quality, longitudinal, deep, well-designed data, and it just didn't exist. So it's not only that it's not a mountain of data, it's also that what does exist, some of it is low quality. Absolutely. Absolutely. The way the data collection was often designed, you know, there wasn't an Aboriginal person within Kuwait of, you know, these methods and where there were, there were often really small studies. And, you know, I'm a qualitative researcher by training. So small studies are a hundred percent my jam, right? Like I, I love a small N study, but you know, we just didn't find the national saturation. There were huge areas of the country where no work had been done that the only things that had been evaluated and assessed were the things that had been funded. So there were all these programs out there, all of these initiatives, all of these interventions that no one has ever assessed for efficacy. No one's ever assessed for rigor or ethicality. It's astonishing. It's sort of mind-blowing. But then at the same time, you know, now that I think about it, it's also not surprising, which is sort of a sad sort of reality to state out loud. So I guess, you know, thinking about indigenous communities how, how and aboriginal voices and say indigenous knowledges and just sort of you know in aboriginal people how are they represented inside schools in australia what do we know about that yeah so i, I think that's really a continuation of your observation about how much really has been missed and how many opportunities have been passed by and how much policy in Australia has really doubled down on deficit positioning, on really harmful narratives, really counterproductive approaches. And when good things happen, we know the old story, right? Like the funding gets pulled or the government changes. And so we have these waves and waves of maybe good things starting, but never quite getting the buy-in to really change things. So we get these representations of Indigenous issue in curriculum, in teacher training, in professional development for practising teachers that really focuses on, you know, the, the kind of cultural representation the, that says the answer to these problems, the answer to poor outcomes is really just knowing a little bit more about Aboriginal culture. And that never really fixes the problem because it's not addressing the foundational truths about what we know that schooling is for and how we know that uh, schooling systems build citizens, right? And they build a particular type of citizen. And so building an Indigenous citizen for an Indigenous community is really not the job of a schooling system. And it does everything that it can do to actually get in the way of that. And just even the way, like what we think not like appropriate and proper knowledge is, is not necessarily the same as what might be thought of as knowledge 
within different Indigenous communities. Right. And the kinds of things that we can take for granted about uh, Indigenous or Native education in so many other contexts actually doesn't even exist in Australia. There are maybe a handful of Indigenous schools here. There are no Native colleges, so tribal colleges that exist in the US and in Canada. We don't really have any of those, certainly not at a tertiary education level. So even the ability for Indigenous people ourselves to be able to design and implement the kinds of institutions that we know that our communities need, even that's not available to us. It's like schooling continues to be very much part of the colonial project. I mean, in this respect, right, where they have very particular ideas of what the state should look like, very particular ideas of what proper knowledge should look like. And what you're sort of saying here is that the way in which we measure that success is based on certain ideas that come out of that colonial project. And so if you're not part of that, then you automatically are going to be in deficit no matter what. There's nothing you can do that will ever bring you out of deficit until you become sort of part of that colonial project. Right, until you've assimilated entirely and, you know, the native has been eradicated from the man, as it were. And I think we see that time and time again with colonial institutions. But schools are only just one aspect of the settler colonial project, white, but the the objective is the same regardless of the context we look at. And Australia is certainly no different from that. So what would be sort of, you know, if we think about what the value of education is and, and what we expect the outcome of education to be, How might we understand some of the differences between, say, that colonial project of what schools might think is the proper educational outcome and what potentially some different indigenous communities might think about what education is actually for and what an outcome might even look like? I'm so glad you asked me this question uh, because I do go on about that a bit in the book. I think it's pretty clear. You know, like we're all pretty much across the idea that school is a training ground for the workplace, right? And that we want to support young people to participate fully in society, but the way a society is rendered is pretty much as an economy. And that, you know, it's our job as educators to enable young people to meet their fullest potential within that society. I think we can kind of pretend maybe that it's something else if you want to, but really we we kind of know, right? We know that schools are just a, a sorting machine to channel kids into professions according to postcodes, right? Like that's really what it does. And so that's a particular version of success. We might tinker around the edges with it, but that's kind of it. An Indigenous idea about success, I think, is fundamentally more inclusive. If we begin from the idea that Indigenous success is specific to the language group or to the tribe or to the community, you can take uh, me for an example. So my mother's family is Gomoroi. So for people who are in other parts of the world, if you think of a map of Australia and you've got the little island of Tasmania all the way down the bottom and you've got the big pointy bit up at the top at Cape York, if you uh, go about halfway in between those and then go west for six hours, you get to the beginning of the edge of my mother's country. And that's where Gomoroi people are from. A beautiful country, uh, forests, uh, river plains, uh, big tall gums. It's gorgeous. So if I'm thinking about myself as a Gomorrah person and I think about what does it mean to have a successful Gomorrah life, what are the specificities of my identity, of my culture, of my language, how do other Gomorrah people imagine Gomorrah success? It's probably going to be in relation to those things 
about connection to people, community, language, well-being. And we know that where we have cultural continuity, where young people are able to really strongly connect with who they are, not just as a kind of a generically Indigenous being, but as a specific, you know, then we get to start talking about that the Gomorrah-ness, the specificities of Gomorrah success are probably going to be different to Wiradjuri or Waka Waka or uh, Navajo or Cherokee ideas of success, right? That each tribal peoples, each Indigenous community has their own language, identity, thriving, well-being. And it's really hard to kind of get across the idea that in an Indigenous worldview, no one is surplus, no one is not needed, everyone has a role and everyone has a responsibility to their families, to communities, to the land, to their ancestors and to future generations. And so that idea of success is immediately more inclusive, is immediately more purposeful, is really different to understanding the type of citizenship that you're trying to inculcate, not just young people actually, but in everyone, than just, you know, we want to make sure you get a job and keep a job and are a productive member of society. So I'm a new staff member here at the University of Canberra, so I have to take all this uh, training. And one of the trainings that I have to take, or that I've recently taken, was run by um, a, a man that's part of the Ngunnawal country, which is where the University of Canberra is located. And he was talking about, you know, how the specificities of the Ngunnawal and how there's actually, you know, different tribes and different families and lineages and, you know, they have to come together and there's a lot of dialogue. You know, it's just amazing to start recognizing not only that history and that, you know, the, the, the country on which I, I live, but he also was talking about how the way in which the Ngunnawal and other indigenous communities, he was saying, think about their location on the map, let's say, is not through the idea of borders, which is quite common in sort of, let's say, just in my mind, I think of borders and passports and things like that. He was talking about it in terms of boundaries and how boundaries can move and be flexible. And, and he showed us this map of Australia with all of the different communities and, and the different boundaries that exist. And when you look at that map, it is so much more rich and diverse and it's quite amazing when i when i was sitting there thinking about it and trying to recognize that it's very very hard to then say what is an australian citizen when you sort of recognize all of these diverse communities that are there it's that is one of the best observations i think because often people think about oh there are aboriginal people in australia and that map that you kind of brought to mind there each one of those communities is not kind of related to each other, they're not like dialect groups, those communities are as different to each other as French is to German, it's to Spanish, right? Like there's a there's a hyper complexity here. And I think sometimes that what we're seeing, particularly in relation to the voice, is a resistance against hyper complexity, is a resistance against pluralism. And that's a really common theme I think that a lot of people are facing in, in different places of the world at the moment. What does it mean to be a citizen of a place that can not just accommodate but celebrate hypercomplexity, that sees pluralism as a really foundational aspect to who we are and, and that conversation about that bigger we, right, and what are our individual rights and responsibilities in that context of a, of a great plurality? Do you think these ideas, you know, the, this great plurality, is it even possible for it to 
sort of pervade school systems, be incorporated into curriculum, because it just seems at such a sort of polar opposite to the sort of other way of thinking, right? Which is that we're all within this one country, we all speak the same language. You know, for me, it's like, how do you hold these two vastly different ways of thinking and being and understanding the world together simultaneously? I Right? Like, what happens to the great project of nationalism once you start? Kind of like, what's a school to do, indeed? I don't know. Well, I reckon in a lot of ways the young people are ahead of us, right? Like, I think that the people who we're seeing growing up now have a better handle on how to imagine themselves as a citizen in multiplex ways, right? Like, can a school do it? Yeah, I don't know, but I feel kind of getting pretty good at teaching kids about metacognition and, you know, in, in a whole way, helping them learn how to learn in so many different ways. Maybe it's just that we need some new ideas. Yeah. And it's also good to sort of recognize that school is, doesn't have a monopoly on, on learning and education. Right? It happened. It's so much broader, right? And so if that's the case, then people are, and like you said, children and youth are, are learning things that are far beyond, beyond anything in the school curriculum. It really challenges our idea about what we think a school should be, right? Where a particular type of learning happens and where we see schools that open their doors to communities that understand themselves as hubs, as, you know, different kinds of service providers in all sorts of different ways. I think we can start to imagine a future where schools might look a little bit different, play a different role in the community, think about, you know, how do we support the greater project of learning and inclusion in different ways, but, you know... I've been accused of being utopian in the past, Will, so... If the voice to Parliament passes, do you think this will have a role in sort of bringing into being some of these ideas that we're talking about, bringing them into being in, in public policy in particular, and then, you know, hopefully or somehow that would then impact what goes on sort of at school level in communities? Oh, I really hope so, Will. I really hope so. Australian politics is marked by kind of incrementalism, right? So nothing happens really quickly here. And I mean, that's what you want from a good democratic system, right? Like you don't want it to be able to shift it real fast. So for a lot of people, the voice is too little, too late. A lot of people say that we've had a voice for 240 years and it's just white settlers, it's non-Indigenous people who haven't been listening. But the thing about this proposal is that the government can't get rid of it and that's what they've done to every other advisory body on Indigenous issues in Australia that's ever been constituted. We have an advisory body, it provides advice on those foundational issues of education, health, well-being, and government might not like that advice. So it bins the advice and then it bins the advisory board that provided the advice <laughs> and then it, can, then it cuts the funding. So the thing about this is that the ability to be able to provide advice to government, to be able to review legislation and say this is how this is going to affect Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in Australia and to have that advice on the record means that it changes, it has the potential to change the level at which a public conversation takes place. Now, there's nothing in the proposal or in the referendum or there's nothing in the proposal or the referendum that will compel government to take this advice on. It can absolutely ignore it. But what happens when we start being able to have this advice documented that all sorts of people read it, right? Policymakers read it. People have greater exposure to 
our knowledge and insight on the issues that affect us. And it gives us the opportunity to start to just kind of shift that needle a little bit. I think it will because that great project of, of social change, you know, happens in incremental steps in places like Australia. And finally, what sort of advice would you give a body like the Voice to Parliament, you know, assuming that it gets created? What sort of advice would you give them based on the Aboriginal Voices project? You know, if they're thinking about something on education and they're sort of thinking about how they want to provide advice to Parliament or the government, and I would imagine this body is going to seek dialogue with others. And, you know, if you happen to be in that space, what would you say? What would you say are the big sort of takeaways from this massive review of research on Indigenous communities and education? I imagine that quite a few of your readers will be familiar with the work of Russell Bishop uh, from Aotearoa, New Zealand, who said that what works for Indigenous kids works for everyone. But what works for white kids works really well for white kids. And so thinking about this great project of inclusion and the fact that culture matters, that thinking about what works for Indigenous kids automatically means that we're thinking differently about how to celebrate diversity, about how to be more inclusive, about how to celebrate different ways of knowing. So that's my first takeaway. The second takeaway is that I want us to think really carefully about what self-determination means in Indigenous and Native contexts, regardless of whether we're looking at health or education or well-being on any metric, where Indigenous peoples have a greater say over the way the funding gets spent, over the kinds of policies that are created and implemented, people do better. That's it. Diabetes rates goes down, school attendance goes up, everything gets better, and it's easy. We have the answers, we know what to do. We can put that in a paper, we can send that advice to government, and we can begin to hold them to account for implementing policies that don't work. Well, Nikki Moody, thank you so much for joining Fresh Ed. Really a pleasure to talk today, and fingers crossed about this voice vote. It's been such a privilege, Will. Thank you so much. Nikki Moody is an associate professor at the University of Melbourne. Her latest co-edited collection is Assessing the Evidence in Indigenous Education Research. A transcript of today's interview with a selection of resources for further exploration can be found at freshheadpodcast.com. Please note that opinions expressed on Fresh Ed are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed, not Fresh Ed, which takes no institutional position. If you've liked what you've heard today, please rate us wherever you listen to podcasts. Reviews really do help. Fresh Ed's team includes Faki Octus, Obafemi Ungunle, Annabella Afrobotang, Phyllis Chain Mensa, and Jose Neto. Original music for Fresh Ed was created by Digital Primate. Fresh Ed is an independently run podcast without advertisements and is made possible by the support of NORAG, the Shock Debt Family Fund, and listeners like you. Please consider donating to Fresh Ed by visiting freshedpodcast.com slash donate. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brem, and I'll be back next week.